When you ask people what edge compute is, you get a range of answers. Cloud compute and DevOps with devices and sensors, with semiconductors outside the data center, including connectivity, AI, and a security strategy. It's a stew of technologies that's powering our vehicles, our buildings, our factories, and more. It's also filled with fascinating people that are passionate about their tech, their story, and their world. I'm your host, Pete Bernard, and the Edge Celsius Show makes sense of what edge compute is, who's doing it, and how it can transform your business and you. You are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1%, so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1%, so you can amplify your life and your business today. Money is meant to be used, not spent. My next guest, he is a frequent speaker and guest lecturer on real estate, finance, as well as he has written numerous articles on the topics of real estate, private equity finance, and various publications, including the Investor's Business Daily, Forbes, as well as he's been seen on TV on CBS New York, Good Morning La La Land. Salvatore Bushimi is the CEO and co-founder of Dan Drew Partners, a private family investment office. He has also managed money successfully for almost 20 years through the creation of multiple portfolios into various cross-asset platforms. I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Salvatore Bushimi, to Making Bank. Josh, it's a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you for making time to allow a guy like me on your, on your podcast. This is truly a privilege. Thank you. Yeah, no, I super excited. I just, I mean, we have a lot of entrepreneurs that watch this show, and just I think what you're doing and helping others um, create wealth, uh, figure out what those next steps are in their life to make sure they have some kind of legacy and some kind of financial legacy. Uh, what, what's legacy? I thought we were all talking about crypto and, and speculating. Wait, wait, wait. What's going on here? Legacy. What's all these powerful words, Josh? Hey, hey! I was I was using the word of the day book today. Okay. <laughs> well, we got, give us a little bit about your background, how you got started in this, and and what got you on this path. Yeah, so this is a, this is an interesting story. I was in college. I went to college in New York City, and um, I was supposed to become a doctor, and that was really like the the mindset. And that's you know when you're from the Northeast, you do that. You go into um, you know medical school, law school it's encouraged that you go to college to be able to go into, you know, a top firm or something like that. So I idolized this one doctor that I had an internship with in, in New York. And I, I talk about it in my book. It's, it's not, I'm not here to, to sell the book, but to tell you the story that I broke my ass for this one doctor during my internship, actually riding my mountain bike six miles down the road in a torrential downpour. And then I told him afterwards, after I held him on a high platform that summer, that, um, I didn't want to be a doctor anymore. And I read a book that a family friend gave to me, and it was sort of like an intervention the summer before my senior year. And it was called Confessions of a Mer- Medical Heretic, right? And it was written in 1977, but it talked about everything that you could see sort of future casting where medicine was going. So I was very lost when I talked to the guy, and he was an orthopedic knee surgeon. He did a lot of the, you know, the surgery for the Knicks, and obviously he didn't help him perform that much better, but you know, he, did, he was like the team doctor. And after a while, um, he said, look, um, this is where you want to go. You want to be a plastic surgeon. This is where all the money is going to be. Um, this is you know, great. Don't do what I do because it's going to be socialized and you're going to be a government employee one day. 
Sort so, so, you know, this is back in 96, 97, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I called him, you know, he called me after I graduated and I was living in New York City and I was sort of like, I didn't know what was going on and all my friends were getting these jobs and, you know, I was like, well, what do I do? So um, finally the doctor called and I called him back and this is like when cell phones were right coming of age and he just happened to call, I had the Nokia, right? The 6800 or whatever. And I'm coming out of the subway station and the doctor called and he said, hey, where have you been? I'm like, oh, you know, I was like kind of dodgy. I said, look, I, you know, I, I, I was on vacation with my parents, you know, celebrating graduation. He's like, so what are you going to do? And I'm like, look, I don't have the heart to tell you this, but I don't think this is in it for me. You know, I, you saw me pass out with a tibula in my hand, right? Like this is not, you know, medicine might not be, you know, this, this, the family might stop here with this stuff. And he goes, you know, I totally understand it. And then he said, by the way, my partner just made my brother just made partner at Goldman Sachs. Maybe you should talk to him. And I said, sure, you know, <laughs> one thing leads to another. But what I learned from that is the work that I did for this guy to build the reputation, to be able for him to tell me that this guy is strong enough to work with you, really outpaced anything that I did scholastically, academically, or even, you know, as a, as a mediocre rower in college. Um, and, and that made all the difference. And when you start looking at the world differently, as far as um, growing your network, it becomes a different dynamic or dimension because that's really how you're getting ahead today when you're seeing a lot of, I think, community. I think society today has gone very pale. It's gone very transactional, but there's no relational. And when you start bringing the relational part, it works. And now here I am 20 years later, and I had a kid for me, <laughs> worked for me, and he got, you know, he's doing a lot of pushing and shoving in real estate. His name was Noah Bradford. And then he worked, went to New York City and worked for a few families in, in New York. And, you know, that sort of melded him. And now he's got one of the most prestigious jobs on Wall Street. He is uh, in the investment banking division at Morgan Stanley and their high tech investment banking group. So any tech toys you see going public on Fox News or CNBC, if Morgan Stanley's underwriting it, I can tell you he's putting in the hours, bringing it to market. He's doing all that kind of fun stuff, learning finances. So it's, it's interesting how the, how the pivot went. But, you know, growing up, I was collecting savings bonds, you know, that's nobody today knows what that is, but those were these things where it was had a $50 face value, but if you brought it to the bank, it was only worth $25. So, you know, it was an easy way to learn bond math. And then I saw my father save for my brother and I at college education using zero coupon bonds. And then, you know, I had little entrepreneurial businesses too, and I would always put the money away or invest it. And today here I am a professional investor, basically working with people who are very successful entrepreneurs who have exited who have come into their own and they're looking to invest in things that the middle class doesn't. That's really what it comes down to. And that is through learning, starting, you know, uh, the formation, I guess, is learning about culture, not just finance and everything, but relationships with people, right? I mean, um, these are relationships that I still invest into 20 years later. And I don't know if I showed you the video, but it's, it's kind of a private video, but I had, I'm invested in a similar deal that my ex boss who remembers me when I was this high at the firm, you know, now he's got his own company. We invested in the same company together, number one, but we also invested in his company too, which has like an entirely different, yeah, I mean, we're talking about heavyweights and world-class people here. So, you know, that whole thing of just keeping, making sure that you're helping others really does pay off in the end because that's how people ultimately are going to judge you, especially if you're in my business and people are trusting you with millions of dollars, right? I mean, I'm beyond the point where it's like, what qualifies you to manage my money? It's, okay, what are you really doing for me today besides just getting me into this great investment? Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, definitely. It's, you know, and, and I think that's super important. As you said, the relationships, you know, those, that's, that's that stronger piece that's going to help, um, you know, as you're looking or as you're trying to find something for someone or, or how to position them, those relationships are going to be the things that kind of bring it all together. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, people are starting to learn this today. And I actually just wrote an article for New York Metropolitan Magazine, and we were talking about what the pandemic did. And um, one of the things I noted is that it's created a tremendous wave of wealth, vicious. Think about it. Josh, Amazon barely existed 30 years ago, and it has the world's highest market cap, one of the world's highest market right. cap. That's incredible, right? You only have to, and you and I both know people who make millions of dollars off of Amazon. That has created a whole surge of wealth today that never existed 30 years ago. And when you add financialization in and everything like that, it creates more opportunities and there's more wealth to go around. So this is truly, I think, the renaissance. And it's the time of the entrepreneur because before entrepreneur used to be someone who, you know, would open up an insurance shop or something like that. They would or they would spend a lot of time making a widget and their friends would tell them, you know, it's a piece of junk or whatever. Today, entrepreneurship means media. It means you know, doing anything that you're doing as a manufacturer, right? With your, with your industry. Um, it means anything we're doing here with a podcast. There's a lot more and you're going to see more of the financialization come through that. You're already starting to see it, uh, where, you know, you're able to buy fragmented interest in songs and stuff like that, but it's just going to continue to happen more. And I think the pandemic with this great resignation is really like the great spiritual awakening of like, what am I really doing with my life? Right? Like what, Am I, why not take a chance yeah. and do something? And you're seeing the later generations now take those chances because they have nothing to lose and they were always born you know, with a camera in their face. As an entrepreneur, I mean, how should we be looking at different ways to place our money? So, I mean, obviously there's real estate, there's residential, well, there's, there's, there's real estate and then multifamily, there's, real estate. there's I'll tell you what all the different York, kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what the New York City guys like. And, I, and this is... This is something where um, a lot of people don't talk about it, but this is sort of like the lifestyle of a real estate, life cycle of real estate. If you have significant wealth and you're sitting on like Josh Felber money, like tens of millions of dollars, you don't want to have 2,000 single family homes because it just doesn't make sense economies of scale. But if you're at that point in your life, you're looking for more prominence, aren't you? You're looking for more stature because there's only so many Rolls Royces that's so shallow. Today, people like to show off on Instagram their networks. They like to show off the assets that they own. Uh, for example, Class A, what we call statement assets. Maybe Josh finally wants to be part owner of the Cleveland Browns, right? So that's, you know, as much as they don't perform, that's a different thing that these guys, you know, but they do make money because- Definitely not. No, of course not. But I mean, <laughs> but that is like, a, that's a status symbol, right? That's a st statement asset. You going after that because you know you're getting into it for two reasons. Number one, you can brag to your friends about it. And number two, you're going to be in a mix with more sophisticated investors that are going to help elevate your current business, right? Let's face it. You're not investing in these things because you want to make money. You do, of course. You want the bragging rights. But really, like especially in like sports ownership and class A real estate, you want to find out who the other people are. Because all common denominators at some point with wealth creators come down to one thing, and that's commercial real estate. Now, the type of commercial real estate comes in is the speculative. So that's single family homes and that's uh, multifamily. That's a wealth creator. That's where you buy it, fix it, flip it. That's construction. You buy it, you flip it, you change from a class B, you know, class C to class B apartment families. Anything with residential is a wealth creation mechanism because you're being paid to take the risk with crappy tenants who are poorer than you, right? 
the wealthy don't like that. People like you want tenants who are richer and more credit than you are, because when you wake up in the morning, you're providing for your foundations and special endowments, certainty of cash flow that's coming in. So it's a whole different thing right now. The last thing you want to see is the Felber Foundation and red copper letters be smeared because it can't make a contribution or something for something that was promised because it was in a bad real estate deal. You can't have mm. 40 single family homes in an impoverished area in America fund your foundation. It doesn't make sense. People try to do it. And the reason why they fail is because they don't have the networks to get to the higher level into the more sophisticated opportunities, which is where we like to play, which is where you're dealing with commercial real estate, non-residential. A lot of people are scared of residential, the investors I have, because they feel as though the residential uh, tenants have a lot more rights than they do. So that's why they gravitate towards bigger centers like Class A industrial, office, um, statement you know, assets, but also investments that not only have a high perceived value status, but also have other smart shoes in there as well that you can network with. And that's more like commercial office buildings is, is what you're yeah, referencing. Yeah. You know, th things that what, what we would, what they used to call the trophy assets that's what we were talking about. So it could be like a skyscraper in, in, in Dallas. Uh, we had a bid right before the pandemic. We pulled it for a hundred, uh, $130 million of a class B to class A office in Orange County, which would have been great. We had great sexy <laughs> drone shots of it. The pandemic came. We're like, nope. We don't, you know, I said, we're removing the term sheet. We're out. Um, there are other types of th think about aspirational real estate, like owning, you know, part of a casino or a hotel, like a really nice hotel. Think about it. A lot of foreigners sure. in New York own a lot of beautiful hotels. They trade hands. Some of them make money. Some of them don't because it's a status symbol to say that they own this hotel on Central Park West. Does that make sense? No, definitely. What are some of the kind of, I would suspect you probably have some kind of like checklist as you're going through and looking at different investment opportunities, whether it's real estate, whether it's uh, companies coming to market, mm -hmm. um, new, new technology, new medical, whatever, whatever that may be. Yeah. What's kind of like that checklist that you look at as an entrepreneur or as a, you know, somebody looking to invest, I should say, okay, cool. It checks off here. It checks off here. It checks off here. I want to put my money yeah. in. Um, this is, this is, it, it, that's a very good question. And it's going to be, uh, answered with one, uh, question. I was on stage one day and somebody asked me this question in the audience in like a professional, like, you know, people wearing suits, stuffy, right? And I'm usually the guy heckling with the guy like, well, rates have to go up. I'm like, this is two years ago. I'm like, really? When? You know, like, haha. But, um, because I can do that. Like you guys are do sports. That's like sports to me. So one guy in the audience, he asked this question. He, he asked me, what's your definition of risk? And I was like, you know, somebody's going to come up with some quantified event. It's like, it's what your families and friends are going to laugh at you for if the deal goes wrong. And when you look at it in any deal, whether it's commercial or real estate or anything, it all goes back to one person. It's risk. So you always have to look at the experience. And if this person and I'm investing my money alongside somebody else's money, you can bet that we want to make sure that we're working with the best qualified operators we can, entrepreneurs. This doesn't mean that they start a business to stop, start a business to stop. You know, one day this, one day that. We're talking about people that have started a business and brought it to exit multiple times, not once, multiple times. So everything in my Don, Dan Drew Encore Ventures Fund, for example, has operators that one of which has 69 exits under his belt. His name is Fred Nazem. I mean, he is, he's my mentor and he's one of the founding fathers of venture capital. These are the people who you want to work with. And when you work with people who have a good reputation, but they have a lot of exits under their, under their belt, that means that they can, you know, navigate when things go wrong. 
what you want to stay away from when you're looking at the, and you also want to, and here's the golden question you always ask is, who's the other investors in these deals? And that'll tell you right now. For example, I know people who are in deals where Rockefeller's in it, right? Like Boston-based type biotechnology companies. Um, that is like a scene of significant money, not because of the name, because everybody in the business knows they'll spend between fifty dollars and $100,000 to do due diligence on this company before they make any sort of investment, because it's not about losing the money to them. It's about losing their reputation and getting involved in some something that they don't want to have to deal with, with headline risk. Whereas the middle class is looking to be, I want to get rich quick. I'm going to call my college roommate who works at Northwestern Mutual because that's finance, right? And then they wind up saying, well, you know, they don't want to lose the money of like doing the due diligence. So they wind up getting these lower barrier to entry deals that are crowdfunded that make absolutely no sense because people are just, they're not sophisticated investors. And this is like, we're not just like, oh, cool. I'm investing like in the stock market or EFTs or anything. No, there's, there's, no, no, no. This is all private equity. This is all venture okay. capital. This is what we call the buy side of the business. This is us just writing checks into it. I lost a lot of weight. I went through my dumpy developer stage. Now I'm an allocator and investment manager. I just, you know, basically I'm a glorified game show host today, but I have a great team with uh, one of my family offices called HRN where I have a lot of smart people who help us and we have a great infrastructure put together. A lot of those people um, are in my book because I've worked with them for over now, I think eight years and I'm responsible. A lot of the successes I've been responsible for is because of that network. Does that make sense? And that's why I bring right. it to fruition so that I can train new entrepreneurs who are looking at this, that you don't want to be involved in stocks that you don't have control over. The wealthy like to invest in things because liquidity to them is a problem. Liquidity, if you have an operating company that's throwing off $5 million of cash a month and free cash flow, that causes a problem. You need to do something with it, right? No, it's a, it's a high class problem. And, and there are people right. who have, you know, there's, there's one story in my book that I talk about Richard Walken, where he was trying to buy somebody else's slug for $250 million cash in another team. And the guy said, no, where else am I going to 5X my money in five years in a very insulated brand protected, you know, franchise, right? Like the NFL. So they have different issues of their own that need to be handled. Whereas the middle class is mostly in scavenger mode. They're, they're, they're indebted, muted and frightened. And, you know, they don't know if they're going to have their job tomorrow. They have one, um, one way of making money. And that's, and, and that's basically through their job or through the stock market. The stock market, you have to remember, allows the lowest common denominator to come in. And once you fractionalize those shares, then it's just, it's more fees for Wall Street. But it's not really right now seen as being a good value, you know, for most people. A lot of people today want to get involved where they can control the terms and the risk, and that's private equity getting involved in companies. I, from a from a technical standpoint, we call it private company arbitrage, right? We invest in companies when they're private, and then we sell them when they go public. And the IPO markets right now are roaring, so now's the best time, you know, to. to Basically, we get in the insiders and then we sell it to the outsiders, which are the doctors and dentists after the IPOs. Does that make sense? We want to speculate right, now, yeah. not afterwards. We don't have control. That's why we come in For sure. now, right? I have a lot of control here. We can invest more. We can do different terms. We can do a lot of things. When it's in the public markets, that's when everything's gone. That's when everybody exits and they, you know, that, that's when, you know, the people are like, oh, I'm going to spend more time with my family. Now you're losing the culture of the company. Why would you want to do that? Because you have to remember, the day a company goes public is the most beautiful day in that company's life. You know, they've chosen the most expensive private banker, you know, investment bankers. They had, you know, accountants tied up any blemishes. 
They had, you know, some of the best, you know, lawyers paper the deals in certain terms. But that company will never be more respected than on its respective IPO day. And then after that, management has to really pull the boat. And if they're not pulling the boat, that's when you start to see opportunities. But right now, the equity markets have been very speculative. We don't do anything and anything liquid at all unless it goes public. Then we let Albert deal with it because he managed five billion for Rockefeller, so it's a great deal. Um, but we don't we don't go out doing that. We find the real value with the private companies run by best in class operators who have been through many exits. That's the only way I can really say that. And the other question that you know the answer to your question too is that you always want to look at the cap table, right? If the cap table is full of no name investors, eh, you know you're not going to get anywhere because. But the other problem with that too is that that company during the roadshow will not get the respect if it doesn't have a lead strong investor in it, like a Carlisle or something. You see what I'm saying? So like name right. brands matter you know, when you're dealing with this. And that's really where the, the success is, not all the time, but it's there because you know, it's, uh, you're dealing with people who have done this many, many times. While some things seem to happen in the blink of an eye, like volatility and inflation in the markets, other things take time, like building a successful startup or perhaps creating a great piece of art. I'm no artist myself, but it could be foolish not to recognize the existence of art as an asset class. Billionaires have been investing in the art market for centuries, while some of us have been sticking with the classic 60-40 equities and bonds ratio. But get this, there's finally a way to get access to the investment of the ultra-high net worth investor without being one. With the $1 billion fintech startup Masterworks, using data and technology, Masterworks is democratizing the art market. They've transformed a centuries-old asset class so that everyday investors can invest in blue-chip pieces from iconic artists like Warhol, Picasso, Vanquist to add to their portfolios. And the best part, it only takes a moment to invest in blue-chip artwork on their platform. You can get started at masterworks.art slash making bank. My listeners get priority access to their latest offerings just go to masterworks.art slash making bank. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. So me being new to this, I'm, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, want, I'm ready to break out of the middle class. I want to tar- start taking those first steps. Yeah. What's that first, how do I start to get involved in something like yeah, this? Yeah, so your evolution as an entrepreneur has followed uh, 400 years of your heritage, right? And I actually was going to write a book about this, but I ran out of time. And um, it sort of talks about the advent of what a, a family office. And then the family offices were really the Venetian merchants who came over and they had a lot of money because of, you know, all the trades that they had done. And they were the ones who uh, had the intestinal fortitude to finance the Italian states to come together and later the development of Europe. And really a lot of these financiers who came from people who were merchants, right? I mean, Marcus Goldman was a window salesman during the, you know, civil war. There was a lot of wealth created and now we have Goldman Sachs today. And so what you're seeing is, People who come to an entrepreneur, they sell their, their company and then they get bored. And then it becomes a personal issue. And they're saying, well, what do I really want to do? Start another company? No, I don't want to do that. Um, you know, th- I want to get more into the investing. So what you want to do is you want to involve and you want to start writing checks to companies that you think are great investments. But really what we should, what you should really do is just read up on it. And I would, I would suggest you join like societies and clubs. That's something that's coming around today. And you can judge a society and a club by the people who are in it. 
And I can tell you that a lot of the societies that you see that they call themselves family offices are really like broker dealers selling products, right? They come in and they bring a CEO and it's a dog and pony show. There's no depth, there's no history. You don't know anything about it. And if it's being broadcast to everybody, how great of an opportunity is in the first place, right? So the first thing to do is you really want to be with people who are um, experienced making investments in the target demographic that you want to get into, whether that's commercial real estate or whether that is, um, you know, doing private equity. There are groups out there, you know, like Tiger 21 and a few that you can, that you can go to. I would, I would really urge you at this point to leverage your network as best as possible. The reason why, Josh, a lot of people fail in this business is because they don't have tight networks and there's a lot of noise and flash. And, you know, when you get sure. back to it, there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of substance and there's not anything really, you know, at, at this point, people are like, well, now what do I do? So I would, I would really, you know, start to network a lot. There's a lot of conferences like IMN professional conferences out there where you can actually get the flavor and understand what it is, the rules of the road and how everything really comes together. There are family offices clubs out there, but remember you're going to go to these family office clubs, not asking for money because you want to write a check because that's how you're going to distinguish yourself. That's really what it is. And you don't have to write the check, but what you should do is to say, if I was going to invest in this company, what do I want to do? How would that look? And why is this better than all the other opportunities that I'm pitched to already? See, so that's really what you have to find yeah. out. And then when you start peeling back the layers of the onion that we talked about before, like operator entrepreneur experience, have they been out of this before? You know, how many exits have they had? None. Okay. Um, you know, this guy's 42 and he's starting over and he's got, he's used to a salary. That's not someone who you want to fund, right? It's just, they don't have the mindset. They've never laid in a pool of their own sweat before. It's an entirely different circumstance. But you really want to qualify that and also find out who the other investors are in this too and really validate that. Start dipping your toe into it, start looking into it, start learning. But I think the networking here at this point is probably the most prolific thing you could do. Um, going outside of your bounds, going outside of your territory, geography. There's a lot of great conferences. I've assistant Art Basel down in Miami. Uh, that's usually in December. There's a lot of families, heavy hitters down there that I go down. It's like, to me, it's just like, it's like a 20 hour day. I mean, they're nuts down there. I love it. New York City, when I'm there, I'm always talking, meeting people, going to groups. Um, and, and, and really what I would do and what I used to do when I lived on the Upper East Side when I was younger is just start aggregating like investment clubs with people who are local who have the same interests as you do. In New York, we used to call them, you know, they, they, you know, there's like these deal breakfasts every Thursday at this, you know, the, the, you know, I forget the name, but I think it was like the Green Egg or something on 75th and Madison. And uh, it would just be me and a bunch of older guys who were older than me. Some of them you might have heard of. And we were just talking about deals and I would learn from them and, you know, some of the things that they were doing, which was like really nuts. But, you know, at that point, that's when you start to see the magic happen and things move a lot faster. And when you're starting to learn how these guys put the mechanics together, that is where the real magic is. Like, how is he doing that? How is he able to invest in that? What documents are he using? Well, you know, is he a broker dealer? Is he doing this is what you want to come together to figure out, you know, who you can emulate that can give you that type of leadership to do that. And there's plenty of wealth out there and plenty of rich people out there. There's Tiger 21. There's, you know, all these family office networks out there. If they're lower barrier to entry, remember, you're going to have a lot of seagulls, but you'll learn a lot. For sure. And you've recently written a book, uh, Investing in Legacy, How the Point Zero Zero One Percent Invest, and you kind of detail and break down a lot of this in there, right? Yeah. I wrote it actually because um, for two reasons. Number one, a lot of people were saying, why didn't you self-publish this on Amazon? I've written two books. And the, the point that I've learned in my career working with people 
is that when you come to, when you come to my age, right? I just turned 47. Um, did I? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, 47. <laughs> you can't remember anymore. But you start getting calls from people, and it becomes interesting because then you hear like, "Well, hey, Sal, you know, it's uh, it's Jen. I haven't talked to you in a while. I read your letters. It's great. I don't understand a thing you say in them." But, um, you know, I, I remember you coming out for dinner once telling us that, you know, all of these families and they want to leave a legacy. What does that mean? And a lot of females start asking this because they're tired of their, you know, their, their husband saying, hey, I just got another $5 million trust distribution this year. I'm going to go out and buy my ninth course. These women are looking more longer term. So I decided if I really wanted to make a statement to go with, to have a female audience, because that's who this book is really written for because they actually make a lot of the discretionary. A lot of people don't say this, but a lot of women make a lot of the discretionary um, decisions when it comes to investing at the higher level. And it's something Wall Street totally avoids. I don't know why. And I said, now I don't have to tell the whole story. I just give the book. I recorded the book for YouTube. So people who get the book, they also get the YouTube me in the studio, the live studio track, right? Like a Grateful Dead show, Cornell 77. Great. <laughs> um, and the book basically details the biases and prejudices that the 0.001% of the top one thousandth of the 1% actually have. And that's actually a subheadline I pulled from The Economist. And um, if you go to investinglegacy.com, I have a free um, report that I give away to you, but you can see actually the whole you know, video there that I pulled out and it talks about it. But they don't talk about anything about stocks. They don't talk anything about crypto. Uh, they don't talk about anything that's not going to add another layer to their legacy. There's one family in Florida, who I'll be meeting in Palm Beach. They're in a deal or in Boston. And uh, they will not invest in anything that does not fit their 30-year impact statement, impact plan. 30 years. So if you're looking to eradicate a disease later on, after you sell, you know, Felber conglomerated enterprises, these are, this is, no, this is like, because this is the ego. Because now it's like, they're investing in these things that are going to perpetuate their legacy, their brand, and they're investing in these companies that will bring tremendous progress to people, right? We're investing in a company right now, which is a peer-to-peer jewelry sharing company that was, you know, that's founded by someone who's very, very successful. And people are like, well, you know, what, this is great. And I'm, you're, I'm like, you're missing the whole thing here. Like, you say you're an impact investor, but here's the impact. You're going to be empowering millions of women to be able to trade jewelry on a peer-to-peer platform. And to me, that's safer than driving a Lyft or an Uber, right? So you're empowering and you have trillions of dollars of unused inventory out there. People are like, oh, that's great. So now they're attracted to the opportunity, not just on the, on the basis of it. You see their clandestine chats that they're like, oh, you know, this disease and this trial already helped, you know, somebody, you know, the swim lake. They love seeing the efficacy and they love seeing the dial move somehow so that they can have a 2000 word obituary, whereas most people have 40. Yeah, no, that's, that makes sense. And then where's the best place for people to grab a copy of the book? Go to investinglegacy.com. And if people go to there, uh, they will get the special free report that I put up there. And it's a funny report. The report is the 12 mistakes, 10 mistakes that most people make with their money. What a lot of people do is that they turn it into, hey, I know four people that lost their money because of number eight. I know five people that lost money because of number one. So it's not in any sort of like top like David Letterman style. It's interesting to see how people have lost their money in the past and it sort of gravitates to them. But if they go to investinglegacy.com, uh, they will get the audible version. They will also get the video version. They'll get the Kindle version and the paperback version too as well. 
Awesome. Any last thing, something where you're like, oh man, I hope Josh was going to ask me this question, but I never asked that question or just something you want to last share with everyone as we wrap up. Yeah. So here's something I said on stage not too long ago. Ask me what the second rule of real estate is. Tell us what the second rule of real estate is. Never stop raising capital. Right. There's a few of those out there. Yeah, there are. <laughs> yeah, there are a few of those out there. But the other thing I would I would tell people too is that I just spoke in front of my private high school back out east, and people were saying, "What's entrepreneurship if you could like really put it down?" And I think even everyone, you know, I've seen everybody I know as an entrepreneur involved, even myself, is that entrepreneurship is self improvement in disguise. And if you can really understand that, then you're going to have a lot more fun. If you're trying to stay yeah. static and pigeonholed and like you're an institution that just came out of HP, you're not going to really, you know, go too far. You have to be able to do things that you're uncomfortable with that growth will help you uh, later on down the line, especially when you start working on bigger things like, like I am right now, which is really cool. No, that's, that's awesome. Salvatore, really appreciate your time today. Uh, super cool. All the uh, awesome information you've been sharing on Making Bank. Guys, go back, rewind, listen to this again. And here's what, listen to what he's had to say throughout and then start to plan and think about in your head, what am I doing right now? What can I be doing and where do I want to be? And then start applying what Salvatore's talked about, uh, grab a copy of his book, start diving in and reading it, and then start applying some of that stuff that he uh, talks about in there to help you grow uh, your business, your life, your family legacy, and what you want to do with it. So again, Salvatore, thank you for coming on Making Bank today and honor to have you on the show. You got it. Thank you. Thank you. I am Josh Felber. You are watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube. When you ask people what edge compute is, you get a range of answers. Cloud compute and DevOps with devices and sensors, with semiconductors outside the data center, including connectivity, AI, and a security strategy. It's a stew of technologies that's powering our vehicles, our buildings, our factories, and more. It's also filled with fascinating people that are passionate about their tech, their story, and their world. I'm your host, Pete Bernard, and the Edge Celsius Show makes sense of what Edge Compute is, who's doing it, and how it can transform your business and you.